Brought to you by the Game Reviews and the Unified Gamers Network, you're listening to Big Red Potion, the podcast whose chow garden is still flourishing. I'm your swirler at the coast, Joe D'Elia, and with me, as always, is the man who puts the man into C-Man, my crazy co-host, Sanan Kubo. What's up, man? Hey, how you doing? You uh, sound real excited to be on the show. <laughs> I am excited to be on the show. No, I, we, let's not spoil what we're talking about just yet. Um, what I was going to say was you were on holiday over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. I went down to the uh, Yeehaw State of Texas, right? Um, which was real interesting. I got to see a bunch of bars. I got to see a bunch of cowboys. And I got called y'all a few times, which was pretty cool. But other than that, not much else happened. Everyone talking like flies. And that, he's kind of got a southern... Is that, is, yeah, is that his dialect? I don't know. Somewhat, yeah. There's a different dialect between Texas Southern and... There's and, just uh, like three different southern. voices in America. There's North, South, oh. and, and Normal. <laughs> All us Americans sound the same, huh? Yeah, pretty much. You should watch the Jersey Shore if you want to hear how most Americans sound like. It's a fantastic program. Right. It takes a piece of my life and puts it on television. Joining us today on this reminiscing romp are two fellow UGN podcasters that are also card-carrying members of the Sega Defense Force. First up, he's the host of the Gamer Scene Scenecast and a man that can appreciate some blue, blue skies. How you doing, Dits? I'm very good. I'm very, very happy to be here to talk about Sega. It's one of my favorite topics. Mm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, me too. This is the show that I was born to do. To his imaginary left, one of the co-hosts of the Gamer Dork podcast, a man whose gaming knowledge knows no bounds and whose dragoon has been safely parked between the yellow lines. Ratso Albion! A pleasure as always, sir. Hello. Well, you can call me Leon on this show if you want. In fact, that's kind of what we go by now anyway. But But uh, whatever you like. I'm, I'm also <laughs> I will happy call to you be Leon, sir. You can call me Leon. Um, I'm also Thank happy you. to be here to talk Sega. Obviously, I, mm. I may be a member of the Defence Force, but uh, I'm I'm a I'm across all the I'm no fanboy. I'm across all the all the console. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Manufacturers, rainbow game makers. <laughs> I'm I'm across the console rainbow, defender of gaming <laughs> all told. Yes. Well, we will keep that in mind today. Which is a day that we were going to take a look at one of the most intriguing rise and fall stories in gaming. Sega was once a console and arcade juggernaut, building up a rabid fan base with their focus on originality and innovation. Now the company acts more as a publisher than a developer, signing Western dev teams to make mediocre license titles and pumping out Sonic games as quickly and with as much quality as a local fast food joint spits out cheeseburgers. But before we get into that, let's start at the beginning. Sega was founded in the 1940s as Service Games of Japan, which is awkwardly abbreviated to Sega. After some success with their line of Japanese photo booths, they moved into electronic entertainment with titles like Hang On and Afterburner. In 1986, they released their first major worldwide game console, dubbed the Sega Master System, which shared shelf space with the then-gaming-saving Nintendo Entertainment System. So, people, the Master System here in the U.S. wasn't really that big. There was... When I used to walk into Toys R Us, which was basically the gaming hub of the 1980s, there was the gigantic shelf for NES titles, and then across from it was the teeny tiny little shelf with all of the white game boxes with weird art on them and the little boxy things all over the place. Um, so me personally, I've never actually touched an actual Master System, though I have played a few of its games over the years. Has I've heard in Europe it was a little bit more popular. Have any of you guys actually held a Master System controller? I did have a Master System. It was more after the transition. It was when Commodore were sort of the games weren't getting made anymore and it was like well I need get a game system to play and I, I managed to get a Master System 2 with Alex Kidd built in not Alex the Ooh. Kid <laughs> and mm. 
I didn't have many games for it actually. I think at the time when I did get it, it was already on its last legs. I think the Mega Drive was already out, but that was all we could really afford. So I had my Master System and I sat and played that all day. It was a strange system, wasn't it? I don't mm. think it was yes. as big over here. I don't remember it being like as big as the NES. Mm, I think right. it, I think it was more popular than the NES in terms of sales. It was marketed over here by. Mastertronic, who uh, all us computer gamers, as of course there were millions of us in in the UK in, and Europe in in the 80s, uh, lots of people with Spectrums and C64s and Amstrads, and uh, uh, I think when the Master System came out, I was looking towards getting uh, upgrading to an Amiga. So the Master System seemed like I don't know, it didn't seem like the forward step that we wanted, and mm. I just didn't have the affection for sort of some of these franchises. Although I was a big arcade gamer these versions on the Master System looked cut down, and, and indeed they were. Uh, so it, right. was, it wasn't until the Mega Drive, or Genesis, as you Americans know it, came along mm. to kind of really match up to the graphics that we were looking for from the Amiga. But um, I, I remember a little cousin had the Master System, um, but it, it very much fell into, the, uh, into that idea at the time that people thought consoles over here were kind of baby toys, you know? and the mm. computer things had to have a keyboard and a disk drive and they had to have you know serious power like half a meg of ram and stuff like that right yeah no it was the same for me i mean i i, I had a couple of friends who had a master system and a couple of friends who had in theirs but the both of them weren't really you know popular um, in the playground as you know everyone had them it's not the same as it is today um i i had an amiga through throughout that time up until about when i got a super nintendo kind of late early uh early 90s 92 93 so um, I played it a few times at a friend's house, and I played um, I played Alex Kid, which was okay, but it, it it didn't really impress me as a system. Even at seven years old, it was just like yeah, whatever. I should say though, I I was familiar with the Sega name as an arcade goer from way back mm. in the early eighties. Uh, games like Astro Blaster at my uh, the local swimming pool to my dad's, and um, confusingly, I had the eight bit home conversion of Spy Hunter, which was actually an American game by Bally Midway. But on mm. the home computer box, it had a massive Sega logo. I assume to do with some kind of distribution or or licensing. Um, so I always associated Spy Hunter with Sega the arcade winners but uh, of course it wasn't actually a Sega game but I, I didn't even I wasn't even aware that they were now a Japanese company at that point although they did start in Hawaii of course many many years before mm. Yeah, I think you're right with the Master System thing. I think coming from the Amiga or the Commodore, you could get tapes, couldn't you, for like two ninety nine, or if you got like the the bigger box, it'd be ten pound. And then the games on here were probably about as expensive as you'd buy them now. They were about the quality, yeah. and the quality wasn't much better than say my old Commodore. I remember having Golden Axe on the Commodore sixty four and thinking, you know, this was as good as the arcade. You know, and the, mm. the step for the Master System really wasn't that much. That was the thing. I was playing a lot of those arcade ports on the Amiga, um, things like Outrun and Space Harrier. That's where I was playing them. Um, they obviously went to the to the Master System first. Or me, and, uh, Outrun Master System. I think Outrun is Master System. There is there is a Master System version of it. Yeah, and it was a lot better than the Amiga version. To be fair. Yeah. No. I, but of course, I didn't have any idea. I thought Outrun and the Amiga was amazing at the time, and then oh later God. found out I got I got the the, the wrong end of the stick. <laughs> Yeah, it was weird over here because you know you guys had a lot of uh, a lot of people in the UK were heavily into PCs at the time, Amiga and the Spectrum and stuff like that. But over here, the Commodore was pretty big, but overall more people kind of flocked to the consoles. 
yeah. especially kids that were my age at the time they did not play with computers they played with the consoles they either got a mass system or nes and the difference here was that you know the nes was a more attractive package that had you know it, it came with the games that you wanted so that more people kind of ignored the master system which you know give sega credit they kept marketing the hell out of it over here and they kept porting um even like when the genesis uh, mega drive had come out they kept porting their bigger games back to the master system like there was a version of sonic the hedgehog on the master system you know which was supposed to be this game that defined the genesis and that you know could only be played on a sega system um there was a really inferior which was basically the game gear version of it was ported to master system um and but over here i mean i i knew a lot of people that were gamers and pretty much everyone went ness over master system um to the point where i've never even held an actual master system controller one little in interesting note about the european release of the master system i'm not sure if this happened abroad as well was that to ease people in to the idea of console controllers over here because we were all joystick wranglers they they included in in the early releases of of the master system a little tiny little nubbin joystick that you could screw into the center of your d-pad because i <laughs> guess they just felt that the european owners weren't ready for this train change to this strange little flat thing uh, and we needed to still grasp betwixt thumb and forefinger the uh, the, the <laughs> little joystick so the d-pad was probably still better than the the 360s one <laughs> it, it actually definitely was, yeah, 100%. <laughs> well, they kind of did that over here, too. The Atari, I think it was the 5200, it came with basically a giant joystick on its controller, and the controller was one of the old Atari ones that had the number pad on it. Oh, wow. So there was, like, four buttons at the top, this giant joystick on top, and the number pad on the bottom for you to play with. So it was, aside from the Jaguar controller, it was probably the most awkward and uncomfortable thing I've ever held in my life. But I guess uh, there was that kind of sentiment over here, too, where people were not ready to stick to these you know, D-pad devices that were just coming out. Um, okay, so let's move on to the more popular one, and one that Sinan can talk more about, because <laughs> he had one. Um, the Mega Drive, or Genesis, as it was known in the United States. Um, for me... You know, I'd always been an NES guy. That was the system that brought me into gaming, really, even though I'd played Atari and stuff beforehand. But seeing games like Altered Beast and Outrun and Space Harrier 2 and Shinobi and all these games that I had loved in the arcades, seeing them, you know, with full graphical quality on the boxes at the, the Toys R Us by my house, I, I knew instantly that I had no choice but to purchase this system. And I pretty much bought an entire arcade's worth of uh, games for that system to recreate the arcade experience in my little house when I was you know, 9 or 10 years old. Um, how was the Mega Drive over there for you guys? Because I know over here, at least around the people I knew, there was kind of like this mass shift from the NES to the Genesis, whereas you know pretty much everyone who was cool was buying a Genesis because it was so much better than the NES. It was a it was a kind of slow bleed over here. I think a lot of people did what I did, which was I, I got an Amiga in uh, 1990, I think it was, when the A500 was absolutely uh, the number one selling machine by miles. And then a few people just started to in get interested in this uh, Mega Drive because the screenshots looked so awesome, especially if you were an arcade goer and you were seeing things that looked a little bit like arcade perfect versions of Ghouls and Ghosts and Strider and right. Golden Axe. Actually, they weren't arcade perfects. And if you run them side by side now, you can see that there were quite a lot of compromises made. But mm -hmm. I just wanted access to the kind of cream of Japanese arcade game development in, in the home. And and so it it worked as a, as a nice complement to my Amiga. So I was still enjoying the kind of perhaps the, the deeper and mouse-controlled experiences on the Amiga, but the quick blasts of um, you know full color 
gaming uh, the likes of which Sega excel at you kind of very red and blue hardcore kind of stuff it was it was definitely the way to go so yeah I added one to my Amiga and I think a lot of people mm. did the same yeah I think I was quite late to the Mega Drive party actually um, I lived right near um, the arcades which at the time I mean the arcades were the place to be and you had everything mm. that you wanted to play there and I think it was when Mortal Kombat initially came out I think it must have been like uh, Max magazine, I can't remember which magazine it was, but I used to follow this Mega Drive magazine, which every week or every month, sorry, they'd have like a bit about Mortal Kombat, and I'd get more and more excited. And <laughs> that was when I had to get the Mega Drive, you know. It was like, well, I can play this, what I've got in the arcades, and I've wasted all this money on, spent a lot of money on, and now I can play it at home. And it was like the best experience ever, and that was, that's what I think when I, I fully went into it. So I might have been a bit late to the Mega Drive party. Well, if you were late to the Mega Drive party, I was almost certainly later than you because I, my parents got me Super Nintendo after uh, Amiga. I think they got it for me in '93 or '92, um, and I, I, I was I loved my Super Nintendo. I thought it was the best thing ever, and I still like I still think remember it very fondly. <laughs> I think it's one of the best systems made. We've had this discussion, of course, um, <laughs> and. Uh, I, I only got a Mega Drive because um, my friend gave up his one uh, around '96, so uh, quite quite late on, nearly you know time for, to move on to the to the next systems at that stage. Right. Um, but I, I remember playing it at friend's house and being completely enamoured w- with all the the big games, you know, Sonic, Altered Beast, uh, Echo the Dolphin, which people sort of laugh, <laughs> look back on now and kind of laugh a little bit about. But I thought it was an <laughs> amazing game at the time. Um, Road Rash was it was a really great game, and I I can remember fond, uh, fondly going into Hamleys when I was twelve, so that would have been nineteen ninety four, and they had they have uh, six floors in that store, and the top floor at that time was the the game store, the games floor, sorry, and it was decked out in Sega and Sonic. It was just everywhere you looked, left, right, center, Sonic logos, uh, boxes of Sonic games, and just this tiny little Nintendo section. And it wasn't obviously that didn't reflect how it was in the UK. It wasn't like that sales wise, but uh, there's this. I think Sega's always been more popular in Europe than it has been elsewhere, and, and to except obviously Japan. I just feel like we're not, we don't have that same obsession about Nintendo that uh, America has uh, or has had. You know, the, the SNES did well over here, but I, I just feel like, at least from you know talking to my friends, how I kind of remember at the time, Sega was was certainly the cooler thing to have and, and more fondly remembered looking back on it. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with you. There. I, th- I think it, it comes down to how it was marketed as well. I think if somebody had a SNES, you'd probably you you were even then you were thinking, you know, that's more for the kids. If you see what I mean, the the Sega brand, I think at the time was more for the, I have to say hardcore, but it was more for that type of gamer. You know, the serious gamer would have the Sega machine. It's um, I think that changed throughout its life, though. I think that was definitely true in the very early nineties, but. When I when I got my SNES around early '94, there was a definite shift. As uh, I mean, the key thing was obviously the SNES getting Street Fighter II at home before the Mega mm. Drive, which ended up with a slightly inferior version a bit later on. Uh, and I think by the end, the SNES was in more European or UK homes certainly than the the Mega Drive. But uh, and it did have a hell of a lot of really cool games from the likes of Konami and Capcom, which did. Uh, sort of outstripped the Mega Drive's technical performance as well, especially thanks to Mode 7 and things like that. Mm. But, um, yeah, I think that was the perception, and it certainly was uh, aided by uh, Sega's um, 
infamous advertising campaigns of the very early 90s where it was all kind of aimed at like definitely people who were your age uh dits and sinan were because i was you know 10 years older obviously so i was already 18 and i was pretty immune to this hey kids be cool <laughs> stuff right uh, <laughs> they brainwashed me quite well <laughs> yeah exactly and it, it was very much aimed at that kind of uh, adolescent boys who wanted to be cool whereas nintendo were always more sort of cover all and, and trying to get more different uh, demographics in sega very much had their eyes on 12 year old boys <laughs> if you pardon the expression <laughs> Well, being an adolescent boy who was trying to be cool at the time, seeing all the, uh, I don't want to say mature, but seeing all the games that were kind of a little harder edged on the Genesis is definitely what drove me in that direction, especially after they came out with their own rating system, where you could actually see now, okay, this game is meant for mature people, so I'm totally going to get it, even though I'm 14, because it's going to be awesome, and there's going to be a lot of blood in it. You know, uh, at the time, that was a really cool thing for me, especially when I moved on to the Sega CD, because on that system, there was a ton of, like you know, cheesy full motion video games with like PG-13 content that, you know, you could not get on a NES or Super Nintendo or, or, or Genesis even. So um, at my interests at the time were definitely fulfilled with the, the message that Sega was trying to put out there. Well, to get back to that, that marketing thing, I, I can really fondly remember the uh, the, the magazine art uh, advert with the naked woman and all the screenshots mm. covering over her and saying, you there's a naked woman on this page, but you won't notice her because of all these great games. And mm -hmm. uh, I... I I, I don't, I'm trying to think how did I see that which magazine was I reading at the time because it wouldn't have been in the comic books I was reading um, but I, I can remember seeing that and uh, you know like as much as they were they were advertising at, at 12 year old 14 year old boys and trying to say look we're the cool guys we're the adult guys I think there was this element of trying to like you, like you were saying let's also bring in people who would have you know more like Neon's age who had played uh, played on uh, sort of the the the, the NES and and the, and whatever and would wanted to switch to something a bit more, a bit cooler, a bit hot, bit I guess not necessarily adult because the games didn't really reflect that, but just something that wasn't mm. quite so kiddish as mm. as Nintendo's games. It's it's a, it is a bit of a misconception because if you actually look at the catalogs of both 16-bit consoles, there's 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 quite a lot of cutesy stuff on the Sega machine and quite a lot of hardcore stuff. But I think the the image was set in stone at, at the time of Mortal Kombat One coming out, where the SNES had the the Grey Blood version. And mm. you could access Red Blood on the... Cause Nintendo were very touchy about that kind of thing. Of course, they allowed full blood and gore in, in the sequels to Mortal Kombat, and, and that's when the perception started to change as well. But if you look at Sega's history, they have a history of extremely cutesy games, going back mm. to Flicky and uh, through Knights and Monkey Ball. You know, they, they do mm. cutesy kitty games just as much as, as Nintendo do in reality. But it arguably it wouldn't have been if it wasn't for Sega, Nintendo probably wouldn't have pushed stuff like Killer Instinct out there to combat this whole, um, you know, older, mature edge that gaming was kind of getting into back then. Yeah, sure. Okay, so um, one thing I also want to bring up with the Genesis because I think it was actually really cool. I'm not sure if you guys got it in Europe, but over here, um, a couple of cable operators tried to push something called the Sega Channel out on everybody. No. Um, basically, it was a cartridge that you connected to your cable, so your television cable service, and you would allowed after for a monthly fee to download Genesis games right into your Genesis which was really kind of cool. I never got to use it. Of course, New York was not one of the areas that supported the Sega channel for some reason. But um, there were actually a couple of really cool exclusives on there, including the only U.S. version of um, Mega Man The Wily Wars, which was the uh, remakes of the first three Mega Man games that uh, came out in cartridge form in Japan and Europe, but never came out in cartridge form here. 
Um, and I think, you know, Sega's always, I mean, we're going to definitely talk about this later, but Sega's always kind of trying to push tech onto people before they're ready for it. <laughs> yeah, and definitely. I think that the Sega channel was definitely a case where not many people were ready to pay $10 a month to access Genesis games via a net cartridge, yet they totally went full force into it and even put exclusive games on there that you couldn't get elsewhere. And I think that's kind of cool. That was way ahead of its time. What year was that, <laughs> did you say? Uh, that was mid, mid-90s, 93, 94, that's 95, around there. crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess Japan had had the Satellaview, the Nintendo equivalent yes. at that stage, mm-hmm. but uh, outside of the East, I, I'm not sure the world was really ready. Um, speaking of weird add-ons for their systems, did anyone in here besides me pick up a Sega CD or a 32X? <laughs> no, I, they, the, the CD to me represented a direction that I thought video games were going to go in completely and I hated, which was full motion video and bad acting <laughs> and I really thought that all games were going to head down this route and of kind of poor interactive fiction with with mm. uh, real video quality images and I was really dreading it I thought maybe games as I knew them and liked them was going to end but uh, obviously that hasn't happened I was mm. I, I did have some 32x lust for a while but the pricing of the thing was absolutely ridiculous obviously mm. as a as by then an increasingly sort of uh, yeah in inverted commas hardcore gamer <laughs> the thought of being able to play Star Wars trilogy and Doom and things like that because I didn't have other access to those and an exclusive uh, Sonic franchise game or two was enticing but I j- could just never justify I think it was 150 pounds over here for the really for the magic mushroom that rammed in the top of your mega drive <laughs> see it was only 130 dollars us so it wasn't that bad over here exactly yeah i remember my cousin had the the mega cd and i pretty much befriended him for a whole summer <laughs> and was around there every day just playing things and i i always wanted one we, we couldn't afford it but that was what i wanted and i think at that time i used to hang out in like a few game shops and i used to see things happen like coming in and going and I think I, I noticed at that time there just wasn't anything coming out. There wasn't anything that brilliant you know, on the horizon. I think that's. I actually went and got a 3DO mm. at that point. Wow. <laughs> the one thing I did want, actually thinking about it, there was one game I really wanted on a Mega CD. Uh, even though we already had the Untouchable Streets of Rage 2, I did want Final Fight CD because it mm. was better than the, the SNES cartridge version, or apparently anyway. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it wasn't worth the buying the system for. I never played it, but many people hold up Sonic CD as being the best Sonic. Mm. I've never. I mean, was, did, you, did you play it, Joe? Yeah, I would agree with that. It's my favorite 2D Sonic game, wow. or Sonic game overall. It has. Um, it's actually kind of ahead of its time because each level has basically three different dimensions that you can jump between at any time. So there's three different versions of each level that you can kind of warp through. And um, to beat the game fully, you have to go into each of them and finish them all off in a certain way. It's it's very creative and very clever and the music is easily the best Sega music uh, Sonic music that they've ever done of course um, there, are, there are two soundtracks as well there's the, yes. the, the the Japanese and the American which are both different but loved by mm-hmm. whoever yeah different people you can get it on the Absolutely. PlayStation 2 of course Sonic CD on the Gems collection so it's worth checking out but to run your Mega Drive uh, Sega CD or Mega CD and 32X at the same time am I right in thinking you'd have to have had three power adapters plugged in that is correct, sir. It takes Whoa. about eight cables to power the combined Sega CD32X. <laughs> these are uh, not Genesis small power adapters, aren't they? These are these are huge no, they are ones. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. They were all the standard 1980s brick power adapters, um, awesome. and it actually it's great because I had you know the power strips that I used to plug all my systems to, and I used to have to plug power strip into power strip just because I couldn't fit three of those behemoths in the same 
single power strip. <laughs> you didn't but then um, stack the Sonics on top of each other as well. <laughs> <laughs> you have to. I mean, it's just, it's, it has to happen. And um, the Game Genie underneath. Of course, of course, yes. Sonic <laughs> and Knuckles with the Game Genie with Sonic 3 in it. Absolutely. I think the it was power a of power. It was a, it was a funny time as well though because we had like the CDI, the 3DO, the Jaguar mm. as well, and there was there was a lot of competition at that time, and a lot of crap. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of crap. Yeah, but it was also weird because like now they've kind of kept throwing out a lot of peripherals between the systems itself and just like the crazy Super Scope Six Menacer type items that you know two or three games supported the the Super Nintendo mouse that two or three games supported. Um, there was a lot of really crazy peripheral things going on back then, which of course led into the 32X being the ultimate peripheral, or not. But um, I, I guess it's kind of that thing is kind of coming back now with all the crazy stuff they're putting out, like the Tony Hawk ride skateboard, but um, I don't think we'll ever get uh, as crazy as a 32X ever again. I think they've learned their lesson possibly from that. But the, the thing is, uh, Natal's uh, coming, isn't it? Or did I... <laughs> <laughs> mm. Well... <laughs> That old thing. Um, mm. <laughs> it, it wasn't just uh, you know crazy time. Superficially, you know, for, for, for us as gamers looking at Sega, it, it, for Sega themselves at the time, it was crazy. You know, they were they were uh, thinking about what they're going to do next, and you know, obviously the the Dreamcast was uh, down the line. Um, but you know, they they had uh, I can't remember the name of the company, but they they came to them with, with what ended up becoming the Nintendo sixty four, and then the same again for the PlayStation. Mm. And they both to both of them, they said no. It's not going to work. We we don't want this. Move on, and you know the Saturn could have been the N sixty four, and it's, this is you know this is the point in time where Sega really just self destructed. Uh, yeah. Well, from what I've read, Sega Japan was had a very firm grip on everything. It were to the point where Sega America really didn't have much of a say in anything, and uh, all the crazy American technology that was coming out at the time was kind of just ignored in favor of well, we want to make this next system a two D system, the ultimate two D system. We were kind of ignoring this three D movement that's slowly building up steam on PC, and unfortunately, that's where our next system, the Saturn, led to its downfall because that thing could not run three D very well. It just wasn't designed here? for it, was it? No. You had one, um, Dits? I didn't, no. No, uh, it, this again was, I think, it, we'll, we'll go into it in a minute, but you had the PlayStation, which wasn't too far behind from this, but once you saw them side by side, there was no contest, was there? Mm. I had and have the very same Saturn that I've had since June 96. I bought it six mm. months after my PlayStation, simply because this, again, was at the point that I realised that to play all the best games you have to have all the different consoles because sure. while there was lots of cool exclusive stuff on the PS1 I couldn't play Virtua Cop, Virtua Fighter 2, Sega Rally so I had to have one it was uh, it was absolutely a no-brainer and what was weird was that throughout the life of my of the active life of my Saturn I mean I still play it but as in there were games coming out for it it went from the machine that I had to play first-party Sega things and some stuff that Sega released over here like uh, Guardian Heroes by Treasure and some amazing stuff like that. Mm. But by 98, it was the machine that introduced me to the incredible world of Japanese imports, particularly Capcom fighting games with the 4-meg cartridge add-on. Absolutely unbelievable. Like This was truly arcade-perfect stuff in the home. It, as somebody who was into stri uh, sprite-based fighters and things like uh, shadows, o uh, Dungeons and Dragons, Shadows, shadows over Mistara, and things mm. like that, it was uh, such an exciting machine to have. But of course, you were ridiculed in public because it wasn't a PlayStation. <laughs> but luckily, I had both. But you know, it was annoying. It was one of those aggravating things where people would 
dismiss it because it was a bad seller and and some of the 3D games didn't look as good as the PS1 versions. But uh, but I knew the truth that there were untold treasures, absolute delights of for any sort of serious gamer on it. Well, I was just looking through uh, an old Game Players magazine from the mid 90s, uh, which is where I ran into that ad that Sam was talking about before with the naked lady. Um, and in that ad, there was uh, some reviews of some uh, mid-90s Capcom fighting games on the PlayStation 1, uh, which would include Darkstalkers and uh, Street Fighter Alpha 2, I believe it was. And in every one of the reviews, the reviewers were like, yeah, these are good games, but you know, we don't really want to play these anymore. We want to play Virtual Fighter. We want to play Battle Arena Toshinden, um, games that, you know, which are of course inferior to much of what Capcom was putting out at the time yet because they were in 3D they kind of took precedence over these tremendously popular and amazingly well built Capcom fighting games like you know Marvel Super Heroes, X-Men vs. Street Fighter, games that got really terrible PlayStation 1 ports but as as uh, Leon was saying in uh, Japan they got these amazing arcade perfect translations that really at the time there was nothing even close to those games yeah, the Saturn and had more RAM even uh, without the cartridge add-ons, so conversions like uh, Night Warriors compared to the horrible PS1 version of Darkstalkers, there was just no comparison. I mean, that said, uh, the PlayStation 1 did manage a decent version of Street Fighter Alpha 3 or Zero 03, but there there was only one machine that you had to have. Um, but, you know, even then, there was still a, there was still a very serious following of Virtua Fighter 2 if, if you did want a quality 3D fighter and fighters Megamix so although they perhaps didn't look quite as cool as Tekken there was a lot more depth to them if you wanted to, to look for it Now Sedan I know you were definitely a, a Playstation person back then um, what was your opinion of the Saturn during this era? Almost um I don't think I really can say was I had an opinion. I just didn't really experience it, to be honest. It just uh, even at the time I, I was just kind of flitting in it in and out of gaming. Um, okay. And I, I did have a, a PlayStation, um, but I, I wasn't really playing it all that much. I was uh, I'm trying to think what age I must have been sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, and just beginning to sort of move on from gaming a little bit. Um, so I, that kind of period of time, I don't really can't really say much about it, but. Um, just where, in terms of my friends, no one really mentioned the Saturn. No one really had anything mm. to say about it. It was just an, an, a bit of a nothing console for people at the time, at least my friends. I was the only person that I knew that owned a, a Saturn. And that was mainly because when it was released in the US, um, the price tag on it was about $500. Um, and that came with Virtual Fighter, of course, but that was an absurd price that was way beyond what most people were willing to spend on a new gaming console as cool as it was and that's kind of i had to make my choice and i chose the familiar ground instead of going with this strange sony device that had just come out and that looked kind of cool it's but worth it, noting that uh, sorry it's the, uh, the one of the reasons that uh sega made the the dreamcast uh, so relatively easy to develop for by putting Windows in it was because the Saturn was so notoriously hard to develop for. It had, mm. I'm no technical expert, but I, I understand that it had sort of twin processors and that a lot of games uh, converted from the PlayStation didn't even use the second processor. So you'd, mm. you'd get the, the expert coders, like people like Treasure, who could make absolute, could make the console sing with things like Radiant Silvergun. 
they knew how to get the best out of it or they made sure that they did but a lot of sort of quick and cheap ports were done on j using just one processor and not working out how to do transparencies and things like that i mean it's arguably right. sega's fault for making it so difficult to develop for and as i say i think that's why uh for the dreamcast they moved on to this windows ce based thing hmm. i was gonna say with the playstation it I mean, Sega tried to make uh, uh, the gaming cool for gamers, if you see what I mean. But PlayStation seemed to make gaming okay for everyone. You know, they put all different types of games. It wasn't just hardcore 2D beat-em-ups or you know arcade ports. It was games from lots of different types of games and got more and more people interested in gaming. And I think the market they what Sega were going for after out here just wasn't there. It was more the Japanese market. And I believe the Saturn did quite well in Japan, didn't it? I think mm. things like Virtua Fighter, which... I think arcades were still huge back then in Japan, and being for them having Virtua Fighter at home was, you know, was yeah. something amazing. So I think you know, it, it was—it just seemed like it may have been just the wrong market for it in, in the Western audience. And even if you look at something like, yeah. yes, very <laughs> overpriced. Um, even if you look at something like Panzer Dragoon, which was one of the Saturn's biggest original series. I mean, that's a very Japanese game that, you know, it never really had any footing here whatsoever in the U.S., and that was kind of the game that they pushed out there to say, look, we can do 3D too, look how cool this is. Um, and most people, myself included, for the most part, kind of ignored it just because it looked like such a strange, weird thing, whereas, oh. you know, in Japan that's something could take off, but here it's, it, you know, it really was not something that would appeal to the Western gamer, especially not when the PlayStation was pushing Tekken and Ridge Racer and all those games against it. It was also, I mean, Panzer Dragoon's Y does look mm. as good as many uh, PlayStation 1 games, and Panzer Dragoon Saga is, uh, I mean, it, it looks a bit chunky now, but for the time it was mm. technically right up there, because it was, uh, you know, it was an in-house first-party Sega title, and they knew they knew how to get the best out of this console, which did have some sure. serious power. Right. Yeah, I think Sega for me, though, at the time, even though I didn't have a Saturn or a 32X or a Mega CD, the arcades was where it was king for me. I mean, I could go play mm. Virtua Cop or you know, House of the Dead, all these games, Daytona, you know, and just and, and the Sega name meant something to me there, you know, more than anywhere else. Sure. Well, that's the problem also is that, you know, you'd play all these games in the arcade, which, of course, there were many of them at the time because arcades were big. And then you'd get the Saturn version of, say, House of the Dead or, say, Daytona especially, Daytona, and yeah. it just does, <laughs> it does not look anything like the arcade version. I mean, well, just before the show, some of the games I, I, came... I just looked at the screenshots, and it's ridiculous. It is <laughs> I mean, ridiculous it... discrepancy. I played the hell out of the Daytona for, for the Saturn because that's what I had, but it was so bad and the, the frame rate was so poor and everything was so choppy that a year later they released something called Daytona Championship Edition, which was essentially the same exact game with a better frame rate. It was because uh, they knew that was that actually sorry, that was redeveloped in America to Circuit Edition. Mm. Um, it yes. did handle differently and, and it, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't as good in many ways. But it, no, it's worth it it's worth saying that, that yeah, that those first uh, the first generation titles on the Saturn, even the first party stuff was was quite poor, quite shoddy. It was playable, but it was technically all over the place. It was that second gen, the the run with Virtua Fighter 2, which was an amazing conversion for the mm -hmm. for the home. Sega Rally and Virtua Cop 1 they were three exemplary ports they weren't quite arcade perfect but they were damn good and that, that, that was what sold the, uh, the, s the console to a lot of people like me mm. yeah plus they were in the US anyway they were packing in I think it was Daytona Virtua Fighter 2 and Virtua Cop with every console that sold in the second year so they were putting up a, a mighty fight against the Playstation but of course it did not last very long mm. um, so a couple of years after that, Sega 
completely relaunched. They decided to move it to the next generation before everyone else, which is a move that's worked for some recent companies, but mm-hmm. didn't really help Sega all that much. The Dreamcast was a key moment in many of our lives anyway. Me personally, it was a huge event. The first time that I'd actively looked forward to a single date so that I could get my new console the second it came out, um, kind of ushering in the era of, you know, first day launches and big event uh, game launches and system launches. Uh, 9-9-99 was a big day. Uh, I remember vividly the day that I got to go to the mall. I got to get my Dreamcast with Ready to Rumble Boxing and Sonic Adventure. And I remember playing it until 2 o'clock in the morning on a school night because it was just so <laughs> damn advanced and crazy and much better than the PlayStation and Nintendo 64 uh, at the time. Um, so in America, Dreamcast kind of kicked off on the right foot. The, the launch lineup was spectacular, possibly one of the greatest launch lineups in history. Um, it looked ev- much better. It had the, the network functionality, which at launch wasn't really there, but they'd kind of laid the seeds at the time. Sonic Adventure, for example, had a, like a content download feature sort of where on Christmas you could download this thing that would make every tree in Sonic Adventure's world have uh, Christmas lights on it. Um, crazy stuff like that that really didn't matter in the long run, but proved that Sega was trying to do something kind of cool with SegaNet. Um, what were your guys? Uh, did did anyone here pick up the Dreamcast at launch? Yes, <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, I was big into the PCs. I think I started getting my, PC, my first PC in around '95, and 3D effects and all these, all these big names in 3D hard and 3D graphics cards were, you know, what I wanted and what I, what I wanted to you know, have in my, from a gaming. And 3D was the way forward. And I remember what, looking at the Dreamcast, looking at you know its hardware specs, and I think they had a Power VR card in there. Which mm. at the time that was you know that was one of the the rivals to 3D effects and I thought oh this is going to be good and it, you know seeing all the online system and yeah you know, the different things like the VMU and all this and I was just this you know it just felt so different to anything that was out there before it just it just had to be had and I, I know everybody at the time was yearning for the PS2 or still playing their PS1s but something about this Dreamcast just I had to go get it on day one. I got mine a couple of months after launch simply because I couldn't afford one on day one but mm. uh, I knew I wanted one from the beginning and I was immediately in love with Power Stone and very soon mm. after Soul Calibur came out which was just you know an incredible 3D game for the time technically speaking uh, I I wasn't I mean obviously again at the time I was that much older I was uh, what 27 years old and Sonic Adventure while it was technically good I didn't ever think it played anything like as well as the 2D games sure uh, and you know I think history has proved that <laughs> with Project sure. Needlemouse being what it is that perhaps uh, Sega eventually worked out that everyone else feels that way but I can imagine somebody of uh, Ditz's age at the time being pretty much in love with, with Sonic Adventure um, and Oddly, again, one of the main things that I did and still do use my very same Dreamcast, I'm looking at it right now, still for, is, again, Capcom 2D stuff. <laughs> the console <laughs> became really, really, like, the home of the ho- of the arcade beat-em-up. Uh, just arcade perfect versions of all these fantastic coin-ops. But also, yeah, again, of course, the first-party Sega stuff, like uh, Crazy Taxi and so on. Hmm. So then, you never... Purchased a Dreamcast, right? Yeah, that's why I'm being very quiet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I so I have to ask, because back then, I mean, the fire was definitely in Sega's court, at least for a, about a year. Um, and most of the attention in the gaming press was, was focused on what Sega was doing and all the original stuff they were putting out. Why did you never get pulled into the Sega camp? I know a lot of people didn't, but why in particular did you not? Um, 
I, like I said, you know, earlier, I just wasn't really gaming as much as I as I was before and am now. It just wasn't as big a part of my life. So I was quite happy with my mm. PlayStation. I was quite happy playing Final Fantasy uh, mm. 7, 8, and 9, just waiting for the PlayStation 2 <laughs> and 10, and one day it will come. Um, just, I, I played it at friends' houses, and I, I maybe I didn't know enough, I didn't understand enough, I just didn't get what the fuss was about. Um, right. I just couldn't see it. Um, looking back now I think I was just being a bit naive because the, the Dreamcast games I've played since Crazy Taxi Res just ridiculously brilliant video games uh, and it was obviously you know looking at the, the specifications of the system it was something quite incredible for what you know at, that, wow. at the time a, a modem in the back of a system <laughs> just a lot of friends of mine had definitely been suckered into Sony fanboyism already at that stage and they mm. were very kind of snooty about both the Saturn and then the Dreamcast but a couple of people I managed to show them things like Jet Set Radio and they were mm. you could tell that they were being sitting in their defensive corner of I'm waiting for the PlayStation 2 but you could tell that they were going well, those graphics are quite good aren't they <laughs> <laughs> yeah that that was the general thing wasn't it everybody just wanted that PlayStation 2 and whatever Sega did they just it, it couldn't bring, they'd bring down people's interest in the next PlayStation console it was sad really really sad but I think they stuck to their very much the, the the games were the same kind of thing they they hadn't done what Nintendo have done now, Microsoft have done as well with, with more inclusive stuff, it was still very much core niche titles sure. that had a certain primary colour aesthetic but weren't kiddie cool, you know, weren't weren't cutesy oh, they were we had Samba de Amigo, we had uh, Space Channel fishing 5. games that's yeah, quite Space an unusual, unusual game really when you think about mm. it for the time I guess, yeah, I guess, and again, maybe they were kind of ahead of the curve in some ways. Obviously, it was the first white, it was the first mainstream uh, white console that was uh, marketed. It, it, we were used to them being more nerdy and black, um, mm. but I guess the world wasn't ready for that either, or online gaming, even though they gave away Choo Choo Rocket for free. <laughs> so did anyone here really use the online network at all? Because for me, I didn't have a PC still at this time, so... Uh, that was the way that I got to play Quake 3 Arena and Unreal Tournament and all these other crazy games. I actually bought the, the Dreamcast keyboard and mouse mm -hmm. so that I could play these games competitively, and um, it too. actually worked really well. Oh, uh, nice. Level so 200 I, in Fantasy Star Online. Oh my Amazing. God. <laughs> that, that, that was the first time that I... Because I'd been quite stick in the mud about online gaming, thinking that that wasn't the future, but then I played Fantasy Star Online and I realized that it could be quite an amazing thing. I mean that had its that is the that was the first sort of inklings of DLC uh, before we even had a name for it. You could download mm. missions and all this, you know, playing online with four people through dungeons. You know, I pro replayed every single level on that more times than I'd even care <laughs> to remember. You know, it's it's it, that I just loved that. I think that's what started my MMO fascination as well. But but you have no, to you have to that. you have to suffix <laughs> that sentence with for the console market because you know that's what yes. I think that's what I was doing on the PCs at the time I was playing Unreal Tournament on PC I was playing Quake 2 mm. uh, I was having a great time online and, and um, I think maybe that is a, another big part of why I, I wasn't sucked in by Dreamcast I was quite happy with my PC at the time and it wasn't soon long after I started playing EverQuest EverQuest 2 World of Warcraft mm. uh, you know that's the that's my lo sort of line into getting kind of hooked in online gaming is down the PC PC line and then through the consoles rather than the other way around I think it was alright for me. It was already that thing of with the with the Dreamcast. 
even though you, I, I did have a PC at the time with a 56K modem, and though I was slumming it on the Dreamcast with 33K, it <laughs> was just that same thing of it all being so kind of easy and straightforward to get online, whereas I found on PC gaming that you had to sort of jump through a lot of hoops and understand a lot of, back in those days, you had to understand a lot more stuff to kind of get your online shooters working and understand kind of what you were doing, whereas on the Dreamcast it was a lot more accessible and everyone kind of you knew that everyone had the same kit and the same setup and everyone mm. was playing exactly the same version of the game and it, it, it kind of made it that much less daunting I, i'd completely agree i mean i i, I wonder how we did it back then because you know me and Dits tried to set up a game of unreal tournament <laughs> a, a, a few <laughs> weeks ago uh we both got it on steam with the sale and it was just a nightmare we just couldn't remember how do you actually set up a game of unreal tournament between two friends but this is what i was doing at the time i was playing with my friends playing land party games you know that kind of thing uh, the console, online consoles gaming just wasn't uh, an entity, an element for me at the time. I was going to say uh, it wasn't a very good game, but there was a game called <laughs> Alien Front Online that uh, totally supported voice chat over a 33k modem on uh, on the Dreamcast, which, again, I had never experienced anything like this whatsoever. I could be in my house, my friend was in his house, and we could talk to each other through our Dreamcast. That were com- the voices would come through the television sets. Um, stuff like that uh, for me was completely unparalleled and even like Sama de Amigo you could totally download songs in that game which was again it, it, I mean it was just download keys that would you know, unlock the game in your, in your, on your disc but still it was something that was so way beyond what had anything else done even when the PS2 came out it kind of seemed like it was a step back because you couldn't connect to any networks you couldn't play Unreal Tournament online on it it was, it was such a you know, until the PS2 really got online a couple years later, it still really wasn't up to the level that the Dreamcast had reached in a very short amount of time. Yeah, I I think there's there's a, a really weird kind of um, dichotomy, no, di- not dichotomy, but uh, a, a strong difference of opinion with the Dreamcast. You tend to either meet people who think that it was a complete pile of crap. I I still have one friend who re- refers to it as not very wittily the Dream Crap. And mm. uh, but equally, I've also recently heard people say things like, "Oh, gaming died with the Dreamcast. There's never been a great console since then," which I think is an absolutely tragic and pitiful attitude because <laughs> there's all kinds of amazing games uh, coming out uh, then and now. But it's weird how it's so. It's almost because of its sort of marginalised status. It really kind of divides people into these extreme viewpoints. When the the truth is that it was a really cool console. Sega kind of made made a bit of a mess of it and um sony did better than them at marketing and that's what it comes mm. down to mm. there's this definite mentality isn't there that uh that so sega sorry um got the best out of nintendo that no one's got the best out of nintendo since but that the, the sega nintendo battles of the 90s were, were so fierce so so uh well fought that you know the games we were playing at that time were such high quality and and now uh because all of microsoft Sony, uh, Nintendo going in different directions. You guess Microsoft and Sony in the same direction in some ways. Uh, it's not the same, which I, I I also disagree with. I think that's not um, not true. I think we're playing some great games now, and there is some great competition. It's just it's just not the same as as it was then because it was kind of one-upmanship much more than it is now. There was a real one-upmanship between Nintendo and Sega, which was really cool. I mean, we got great games out of it, but. Uh, um, I mean, do you guys think if Sega was around around now as a as a platform holder, that we would be seeing maybe better games from Nintendo, better all round games from Nintendo, a stronger a stronger lineup, should we say? 
it's such an alternative universe that it's hard to imagine because it's hard <laughs> to imagine Sega existing as a console uh, developer with in the same world as the Wii and the DS mm. have done what they've done in terms of becoming something completely well not completely else but very different I mean certainly as a as a long-standing fan of first-party Nintendo stuff as well as Sega stuff I do think there's been a bit of a drop-off in quality of the first-party Nintendo games you compare mm. Mario Kart now to Super Mario Kart and things like that and they've you you can argue that they've been dumbed down and simplified but then you know Nintendo still make a lot of really cool stuff so god I don't know yeah it's like a it's like an unimaginable scenario really because what happened happened very hypothetical oh. yeah I always thought that Microsoft picked up the torch from Sega, basically. I think the original Xbox, it borrowed a lot of ideas from the Dreamcast, you know, things like trigger controls, the online system. I think yeah. that was that's where I went to afterwards. I, I, I kind of bypassed the PS2 for a long time, because I was quite bitter at the time. <laughs> and, and Not now, though, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I still am. They lied. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was the beginning of the Sony lies as well, wasn't it? I think it was the E3 where they showed off the um, the PS2. They were showing all these sort of pre-rendered things again, like Tekken oh, yeah. 4 with the realistic moving grass, and everyone went crazy. <laughs> it was mm. just, you know, it, it it just it does. I don't know. I guess it was the, it was the star that shone twice as bright, wasn't it? And it did everything new. I think it's going to stick with people's hearts if they enjoyed it, and you know, if they if they love the Dreamcast, they always will. Well, the question, I mean, I have is whether or not there would even be an Xbox now if it wasn't for the Dreamcast's death. I mean, if you look at the Xbox's early launch lineup, most of it was Sega games that obviously it had one point been meant for the Dreamcast, like Jet Set Radio Future, Panzer Dragoon Orta, Crazy Taxi 3, and even Peter Moore himself jumped right mm. from Sega to Microsoft to head up their games division at the time, um, which is why Microsoft probably pushed online as much as they did in the early going and so on. But, you know, I mean, there was even, I forget where I heard this, but there was even talk between Sega and um, Microsoft yeah. during the early going of the Xbox to have uh, Dreamcast games playable on your Xbox, which, whether or not that would have changed anything, I doubt it, but that would have been uh, an interesting you know, cooperation between two companies, a, a very American company and a very Japanese company, that there really hasn't been anything other else like that in gaming. A little something for everyone. From the serious analysis of Big Red Potion to the firm but well informed GamerDork UK. GamerDork, 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 GamerDork. Find like minded comment. Keep your hobby alive. Gaming bargains to help keep your hobby alive. There's one of the best and friendliest communities on the internet. And if you're one of us mature gamers, find like minded comment. So we haven't mentioned Shenmue. That probably <laughs> dented Sega quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. it cost it $70 million dollars or something? Yeah. Yes. Is, it, is it true that it's still the most expensive game ever developed? Is that actually still true or is that is that a myth? But it's certainly up there. Anyway. I will check out as we talk. Check it out. Yeah. I uh, Shenmue for me was off my radar because at the time I was completely anti-RPG, but I know Ditz, you have a, a soft spot in your heart for it, so it's got fighting what made Shenmue it? so amazing? <laughs> uh, it was the first, uh, I guess it was the first sort of game which really, 
it, it brought this whole reality to it. I mean, you walked around, you talked to people, you saved kittens, um, but it had like a real <laughs> emotional thing, emotional feeling behind it from the opening cutscene where you see your father getting murdered, and it's all this revenge story, and it just it did something so amazing. I mean, the dialogue, okay, it wasn't read very brilliantly, but it was you know fully voiced over. You, know, you could there were so many mini games you could go to the arcade and play Hang On, you know. You, it was think what do they call it? I think it was Free Eyes Entertainment or something. They called it Free, but it was basically the first ever QuickTime event. And it, it did so many firsts, and it also it it looks brilliant still now. I think you put it on and you're just wow. This comes from like a ten year old console, you know? It's it's <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah, <laughs> and it, I don't know something about that game. Just it had me gripped from start to finish. That and this and the second one, which was it did come out, but the it was with the Japanese voiceover. Mm. Um, that which was a massive improvement, by the way. Yeah, it was. He didn't just hear I, I see every five minutes. But um, that is, it just had so many elements of games in it, and it was, just, it was just such a visual treat, and the story was... It just had me hooked as well. I don't... There wasn't any game like that. Um, there's, there's obviously been some since, but I don't think there was anything like that at the time. I, I don't think they've... Do you know when I can, where I can find some sailors? <laughs> 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 Have you seen any sailors? <laughs> I don't think they've they've ever released how much it cost to produce, but the it's generally sorry it's generally believed to be about seventy million dollars in total to have produced wow. that game, which I think to me sounds like the most expensive video game ever made. Well, it was supposed to be a ten-part story that they cut down into two, and they never got to finish. And now I, the story last week actually made me laugh, uh, where Sega said basically to some outlet that hey. If one of the platform holders wants to pay us to make Shenmue 3 to make it an exclusive for their system, we'll totally do it, which I thought that was kind of great to say. Uh. It wouldn't be... It's, it's, this, this is something that I wanted to mention anyway, but it's interesting how people who are kind of disillusioned or upset with the way that Sega are now perhaps aren't making, uh, looking in the right place for their Sega games because, of course, mm. what, what you really need to do is go and follow the producers of the great Sega stuff of the time, like Yuji Naka's now got his own company, Proper, and uh, I mean, Yu Suzuki is, is still at Sega, but would he actually, would he be the lead developer behind uh, Shenmue if they did it again? Because a lot of the, like, Pan the third Panzer Dragoon game, Auto, on the, the Xbox was not done by Team right. Andromeda, who did the previous Panzer Dragoon, so there's always that danger of, yeah, okay, it'll be called Shenmue 3 or it'll be the latest Jet Set Radio sequel that everyone who remembers the originals fondly yearns for but if it's by a different development team I mean look at Knights on the Wii it's a, it's a travesty because it's I mean that still ostensibly handled by Sonic Team but, but butchered you know yeah, and Crazy Taxi for the PSP was an absolute abomination um, yeah, compared to the original yeah. games yeah. Um, what sort of wanted to talk about kind of the new Sega and to see what you guys kind of felt about it because I have a list here I put together a list of the third party games that Sega has been publishing because if you look at what they've done in the last couple of years most of it has been publishing third party games um, as opposed to publishing their own stuff you know, the Sega in the Dreamcast era and the Saturn era they used to have this I believe it was eight or nine internal teams that would make stuff for arcades and for home systems uh, teams like Hitmaker WoW Entertainment uh, I think Sumo Digital was one of them and now most of those teams are either consolidated into one another or just disbanded completely. Um, I, th I don't think Hitmaker exists as it did or, or any of the other teams like that. Hitmaker made Crazy Taxi and games like that. Um, and of course the uh, the team that made Space Channel 5 and Res has broken off and they're now their own company. 
Um, Q so Entertainment. Yeah, Q Entertainment. So what do you guys think of this list? This is games that Sega has released but have not in- in- developed internally, and there, there's definitely some interesting things on this list. Ghost, Golden Axe Beast Rider, The Incredible Hulk, Iron Man, AVP, Bayonetta, Valkyria Chronicles, Mad World, Chrome Hounds, Condemned, The Club, Daisy Fuentes Pilates, Empire Total War, Full Auto, Iron Phoenix, Space Siege, Stormrise, The Conduit, Universe at War, Viking, and The Matrix Online. Hmm. Clearly, there's a lot of crap in there, <laughs> but... Yeah. But, and there's it also should be said, there's tim- well, there's I'm sorry, Total God. War, mm-hmm. Total War, which is, uh, I mean, they're not games that I play, but they're very highly regarded, and one that you didn't mention, cause probably because you're American... Sega has been at number one in the PC mm. charts non-stop for three months now because they publish Football Manager, which is mm. the, uh, the, uh, a very, very long-running series that goes back to the early 90s. And uh, and that's a genuinely excellent game, if <laughs> niche. Popular, but niche. <laughs> well, that's the thing. There are some great games on this list, but if you had told me in 1999 that Sega would be publishing The Club or The Conduit or... Alien versus mm-hmm. Predator, even I would probably spit in your face, because these games don't feel like Sega games to me. This feels like a, a totally different company, kind of like the new Acclaim, how they're publishing these weird MMOs that the old Acclaim would never have published. It almost feels like the old Sega, in a way, has changed. Yeah, and the new Atari and the mm-hmm. new Activision—none sure. of them are the same as they once were. As I say, you have to look at the producers, the developers, the actual people behind these games, and find out what they're doing, not the label. Right. The label is kind of irrelevant, really. I mean, Bayonetta yeah. is—I think it's absolutely incredible, f- phenomenal video game. But it feels like a Capcom game <laughs> because it's by a Capcom <laughs> developer, somebody who made all. Hi- I disagree because of all the Sega references. And, I, and it- apart from all, I was going to mention all the Sega references, but. It still feels it. I mean, it it has a Sega ness about mm. it. It has a bright color palette and it's kind of arcadey and quite quite hardcore. But to me, it, it feels like Kamiya's previous games. So it feels like a Capcom game. I, I can mm. I, yeah, I totally agree on that. It, it feels like a, a for me a bit more like a mesh. And I guess maybe that's because I kind of think of it more with Mad World in mind, Platinum's uh, Platinum Games' previous game, right. which is really feels like a Sega game to me. Uh, I don't know. Just it's it's maybe it's just plain because it's rebellious and that it's got a bit of attitude and it's it's quite silly and it's different and these are kind of the things I've generally associated with Sega over the years for me um, but like I've been playing Valkyria Chronicles all, all weekend which we, we mentioned that this that's a brilliant game and that's 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 Sega WoW developed that's one of their um, merged companies that you mentioned and uh, so that's still yeah. Sega in-house essentially and it's an absolutely fantastic game brilliant and uh, you look look to the you know future games they're releasing Alpha Protocol which uh, is Obsidian. There, there are some good ga- good games on the publishing label, and I think, uh, hopefully, Sonic 4 might be the, the one that changes hmm. Sonic's face. That's what we're all, ho- we're all hoping. Um, so, you know, in terms of in-house development team, which is what you know, Leon's saying, there might be brighter things from Sega. I would far rather that they concentrated on, although I'm, I am excited about Sonic 4, I'd far rather that they released good quality stuff that isn't traditionally them or by its different by different producers so whether it be football manager or bayonetta then then they keep taking old ip and butchering it like with golden axe and things oh, like yeah. that just leave that s- stuff alone unless you're going to do it well and, and properly beast rider is one of the worst games i've played it is an mm. abomination it really is 
Leaving the House of the Dead Overkill, which was a good, it was a solid game. It was very well made, but it did not feel I, at all like a House of the Dead title. It I felt kind of like they slapped the IP on it, and I did not appreciate that. I mean, the House of the Dead definitely had its unique branding, and that's kind of what I'm afraid with. I have not played the new Knights, but I've not heard a single good thing about it, which kind of makes me cry a little bit on the inside. And I'm afraid that, you know, Sega does have these IPs. They know that a certain group of people does want Space Channel 5 to come back. They do want something like, you know, they are remaking a new Daytona game which is both amazingly awesome and also really bad to me in a lot of ways. Uh, I don't think they're calling it... I forget, what are they calling that game, Dits? Do you remember? I don't remember that. It yeah. wasn't... They, they didn't have the Daytona name anymore, did no. they? No. It's like Sega it's Super Racing Sega or something Sega Arcade like Racing or something yeah, like that. Something yeah, something like that. Uh, I mean, actually, it, it's worth looking at Sumo's stuff because they, they're often given some of these old IPs and told not to do too much with them and just mm. bring them in high def to the downloadable services. So we've got Afterburner Climax coming, which looks right. awesome. Although, it obviously, it won't be the same playing it in the home as, as in a, a sit-down cabinet or whatever. But uh, we've got Outrun Online Arcade and, vir- uh, you know, ultra-niche ultra virtual on Oratorio Tangram on <laughs> the uh, on the XBLA, which is... That's purely for Sega fans and for Dreamcast people. I mean, that's not for anyone else. I was going to say, Sumo's kind of been the bright, shining star. They've, they've been making the virtual tennis games, and they've been making the... You know, the uh, the Sega Superstar Tennis, which, as generic in many ways as that game was, it was probably the most Sega game that we've gotten in the past couple <laughs> of years. Um, Super fan service, and, and we've got yeah. the racing game coming from them as well, of course. Yes, of with course. Which with Rio in it. <laughs> <laughs> with every single character they could have possibly jammed into that sucker. Um, what do you guys think about Sonic 4? Do you think that... I mean, I know, yes, it's a 2D Sonic game, and yes, the 2D Sonic games that they have released in the last couple of years, like the Sonic, uh, the DS games, Sonic Rush and Sonic Rush Adventure, have been pretty good. Um, yet, I see that Sonic Team probably has some involvement with this thing, and that immediately makes me cringe about the possibilities of what this could, could be. Do you guys have any faith that Sega can make a good Sonic game with Sonic 4? No. that noise says it all the the problem for me is that we were saying this about Sonic Unleashed only a year ago we were looking at that that trailer that came out you know that got leaked on the internet going look at this it's like old school Sonic again you know and how many times have we been burnt and we haven't learnt like Sonic Unleashed was an absolute travesty a really I couldn't get past two hours in that game before turning it off and Mm. throwing it in the bin and this is the thing Sonic Team is not what it was uh, just because it's still, it's you know, Sonic Team are developing it, doesn't mean that it's going to be as good as Sonic 2. And I think it will be a surprise for me if it turns out to be critically and commercially successful. I think, uh, I think caution, cautious optimism is advised. I think one, there, there are two, two key things. One is that I'm really pleased that the the little bits of music we've heard sound like they're at least in the style of the Mega Drive games as opposed mm. to the, the the rock that came in with I mean just terrible music <laughs> that came in with Sonic Adventure <laughs> and beyond and I, I know some people kind of like it for its cheesiness but to me I adore some of the tunes in the, in the original classic era Sonic games and, and to oh, just shudder thinking about some of the stuff that is in <laughs> Sonic Adventure um, but I think what will happen is my second point on on Sonic 4 is that the first episode will do gangbusters because a lot of people go oh Sonic oh look it's a new Sonic and they'll download it and they'll play it and then they won't bother buying all the other episodes that follow it Mm. up I think this I I agree with you except on the point that when it hits retail 
we could see a really different beast because it's going to be some kind of retail collection of this at the at the sure. end of it there'll be sonic uh, 4 collection episodes 1 to 4 and as long as it's advertised just a bit like we've seen that the sonic name still sells even with bad games uh not always sometimes sometimes the word gets out but uh, you know on the Wii games they've they've sold uh and uh, just look at the, the name being lent to uh, Sonic Mario the, the Olympics, uh, which is by all means I've heard is a, a reasonable game, even a good game. But um, 11 million is crazy, is crazy amount of sales. So um, I think in terms of whether it'll be good or not, we'll see. But I think commercially it could be really big for them. I like how um, Sega have been handling it. Actually, I don't know if you've been following the Sega blog, but they had the whole thing where they would be crossing off a name. Know, who's going to star in the game and you know, they've, they've wound it all down to just being Sonic they're, they're kind of trying to appease the fans I think, I think they're saying we are actually making a Sonic game You know, don't don't worry And I don't know, it's, you, you say we've, we've been burned many times but I'll be there but I'm a bit I'm a bit nah, sort of miffed off that it's being episodic as well, hmm. I, don't, I don't like that I was also miffed about they, they had to mention, oh you can totally play this with motion control if you want mm. Sliding that in there is what gave me my biggest heart attack about this uh, this thing. Way more I hadn't than the heard that. That's that is yep. worrying. Yeah, they, they actually specifically say PS3 and Wii, you will be able to use motion control if you'd like to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um. Just oh, oh, one follow up if we could. Did, have we all seen the the trailer for it, uh, which they released? Yes. yes. I mean, the thing that occurred to me when I watched that, they showed the years of all the major Sonic releases. 1991 for Sonic 1, 1992 for mm-hmm. Sonic 2, 1994 for Sonic 3. And then I thought, what year are we in now? 2010. It's taken you 16 years to realise <laughs> that this is what we want. That is... Mm. Yeah, I think that says it all about Sega, to be honest. But you can't... Yeah, but then the sales of things like Sonic Heroes and uh, some of the others in that era were pretty damn good so arguably mm-hmm. they didn't get it wrong they got it wrong from a maybe an um, artistic to be pretentious point of view and from the fans point of view but not from the uh, the general games buying public that, that is a fair point I think I just I, I guess I kind of think of it in the sense of what have we been shouting for the last six or seven years looking at what you know new, new Super Mario Brothers Mega Man 9 it's been a <laughs> it seems obvious to us and it, I just it surprises me that it's taken them this long but there you go I think Sega would argue that we've wanted Sonic with guns because they totally <laughs> gave us that before they gave us this game so yes <laughs> alright I have nothing to say um, to <laughs> <laughs> what man it, it's good uh, okay so just a couple of quick things before we close up um, Sinan brilliantly brought up the idea of brand loyalty before we did the show today uh you know, back in the Sega Super Nintendo days, I mean, it's been, it was absolutely crazy. You were either one or the other. There was no riding the line like there is today with, with consoles. Do you think that brand loyalty kind of exists as it used to? Do you think that the, the Sega versus Nintendo choose your side type of thing is even around anymore? Is it as potent now with the, the triple triple war that we were currently embroiled in? Or do you think it's kind of, it kind of died with Sega in a way? It's only one step away from fanboys and brand loyalty to me, and it, it's absolutely absurd, uh, in my opinion, to sort of sycophantically defend everything that one company, whether it be a console maker or a games developer or publisher, does, and criticise everything else when anyone who loves video games, as I've said before, knows that you need you need to be open to all the different 
developers and manufacturers if you want to play all the best games. Mm. For every for every Sonic the Hedgehog and Outrun, there's a Green Dog the Beached Surfer dude and a The Ooze <laughs> or a Blue Stinger by <laughs> Sega. They've done tons and tons of crap as well as many, many legendary titles, um, just the same as all the others have. So, as I say, it really comes down, same as in music, it comes down to the people who actually make it, not the label. Right. I mean, I, I, t- that it's I, tos- I totally agree. I think the f- I think there's a s- there is some fanboyism these days in terms of the whole PS3 360 thing, but it it's not the same because the marketing's not the same. You know, we, like mm. we said at the top of the show, it's the whole Nintendo thing. Uh, Sega were actively saying you, you can't play Nintendo, you've got to play Sega, and you don't you don't quite get that from the more timid marketing approaches of, of Microsoft and Sony and, and Nintendo. There's a you know, like we've we've heard uh, we've heard Reggie say uh, things along the lines of people can have a 360 and a Wii. That's what we we expect people to have. Um, you know that kind of uh, attitude is. It, it, I think the fanboys in that's around these days is just because there are a lot of kids who get internet access. It's not quite the same thing as it was back in the day. <laughs> I think when the original Xbox launched, there, were, there was a very big push with like the only on Xbox. Uh, only on it, uh, and that was like branded on there. And if you could bought the magazines, they'd always have a list of the exclusive games. But I think the line has been blurred quite a lot now. And I think, yeah, there, there is. I mean, to have all the consoles right now, and we have, uh, I don't have the Wii, but I think most people do have more than one console now. I think it's it's not as big as it was. I'm talking, talking just the one kind of thing on brand loyalty. Sony, Sony obviously mis uh, overestimated brand loyalty the PlayStation 3 that's the that's the big thing we can take away from this generation that uh, you know you look at the sales of the 360 and the sales of the PS2 and uh, the sales of the PS3 and it's just clear that there's not everyone who had a PS2 is having a, is getting a PS3 uh, so and, and Sony thought they would So one final question. If Sega right now were to relaunch and to say, all right, everything you guys have wanted, Shenmue 3, <laughs> Jet Set Radio, Panzer Dragoon, all that stuff right now, it's coming to all three systems. Do you think Sega has a place in the market? The old Sega has that place in the market today. Or do you think that everyone would kind of just ignore them and go back to playing Modern Warfare 2 for the most part? I'd hope everybody would turn around and go, "Oh my God," you know, and be there on day one and get it. But I think it's just people like us, really, who would just be very, very excited, and that, you know, the the people who are very much into their games would be. But I don't know if if it's there anymore. Actually, I, don't, I think Shenmue Three, yeah, if that dropped, people would go crazy. The internet would light on fire. But I don't think you know, general person would be even that bothered. Yeah, absolutely. I agree, hundred uh, percent. The, I mean, these some of these things were quite niche at the time. They were popular amongst gamers, but they weren't popular. In, you know, people wouldn't. People know the what name Call of Duty or Modern Warfare, but people don't know the name Jet Set Radio or Shenmue, and and they still mm. won't. That, that won't have changed just because more people have got consoles. Yeah, maybe if Jet Set Radio Three came out and got ninety five percent in all the magazines, then it would do quite well. But it probably wouldn't in reality. I played Jet Set Radio recently, and it had a lot of very irritating old sort of old style 
game things about it. It was kind, you know, it's still cool. It sounded great. It still looked pretty cool. But you know, they'd they'd have to change a lot of stuff. And and like I keep saying, it's really it's about the people who actually make these games. To the right. point that if if they just handed Jet Set Radio to some not particularly talent, you know, maybe technically competent but not artistically visionary development team in Sega, then you're just going to get a kind of something that hasn't, you know, I, uh, I'm sort of shying away from it, but hasn't got the soul of, it seems appropriate in the case of Jet Set Radio, <laughs> but uh, yeah, something that, that so just sort of apes it without having the spirit and the soul of the original, basically. So I would rather see, I mean, the, the, the sad thing for me, and it's touched on this earlier, is the demise of Sega in the arcades. But that's just the demise of arcades. I mean, Sega do still make arcade games, and big ones, mm. but uh, I played House of the Dead 4 uh, quite recently, but uh, it's memories of seeing that big blue logo with the lines on, on the front of things like Space Harrier and Galaxy Force 2 and Super Hang On and even going back further to Buck Rogers' Planet of Zoom. Uh, that's that's what I miss as much as anything. I think I think Ditz and Leon are both exactly right. What I would say is I think your, your question is almost like, do they have the cachet that Nintendo has? And they don't. Uh, mm. And the, no. the problem is that they don't have the franchises. Uh, you look at Nintendo, and you just you could say Zelda, Mario, Metroid, uh, Donkey Kong, whatever, and these things will always sell. You just have to, just has to be the name of the box. Sega, really, Sonic, and then you're struggling already. You know, maybe mm. things like uh, God, even I'm I'm struggling. I'm sure Ditz and 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 Leon could name maybe some possible ones, but. Uh, I just think that they'd uh, we, that. there's there's obviously there's knights, but uh, Virtua Fighters, you know, been kind of eclipsed even by the return of Street Fighter Four, and yeah, it's um, definitely it's it's for the fans. I think all the franchises. Yeah. Uh, some of them have lived on in different different names and different guises. I mean, like Yakuza is basically Shenmue, and mm. nobody cares. Well, again, but they do. But Yakuza fans care, and some Shenmue fans. But yeah, the wider world doesn't really. It's it's very true. I think maybe the future for Sega is in the. I don't know about episodic necessarily, but certainly in the downloadable services. Because you know, I know that if they did a an HD version of all the Super Monkey Ball games collected, I would be on that the minute it came out if they did in fact if they did an HD version of virtually anything from Sega's quality back catalog and made it downloadable then everyone like me would buy it so mm. well, that's the thing i mean Sega's always kind of been releasing downloadable type games like Die Hard Arcade came out for $50 you could beat that game in 45 minutes you know yeah. House of the Dead 2 you could beat that game in an hour and that game came out for $50 they've always kind of been releasing these short form games you know but the, back then, the only way to release them was in stores. I mean, they could totally relaunch all of their arcade lineup as XBLA and PSN games, and they would fit in perfectly with what is offered on those services. It just doesn't seem like the Sega of today has much interest in that, aside from the once-a-year afterburners and outrun online arcades that they've been pushing out, which is a shame. Well, well that is the rumor, isn't it? That is the rumours, isn't it, that the mm -hmm. PlayStation or Xbox are going to be getting Dreamcast games, and mm -hmm. maybe that's another way in. Mm. You know, if it well, they already are. Well, that's confirmed, I mean, isn't it? Soul, yeah, Soul Calibur and Virtual on are already there, so it, mm. it is happening. It's just uh, it's not been kind of it's been a soft mm. launch, I suppose you could well, say. Well, I have a question for you, Joe, and then and then you can 
pass it on to Leon and Dits. What what do you think Sega's legacy is to the gaming industry beyond like individual games? What do you think people will remember Sega for adding as a platform holder? I think more than anything else, Sega will be remembered for their arcades. Because today, honestly, the, the biggest Sega legacy is when you do venture into a random struggling arcade somewhere, There's most of that place is loaded with Sega machines. And to play something like Daytona linked up eight players, there's nothing like that. You know, I think that above all else, above what they've done in the console market, that's really where they, they left their mark and where, unfortunately, the arcade market is drying up even worse than it has been. But as long as they do continue to exist, that's kind of where they stand out above everyone else as being the top of the top. And I think their games really benefit from that quick, you know, throw a buck in, play it for five minutes, and then walk away type of experience. And unfortunately, they were never really able to translate that to a quality 40-hour console experience. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I guess if to go with something different, I'd probably say the online experience to a console. Um, I don't think we can understate how important that was and how much of a big step that was in the Dreamcast. Mm. And it took a few years for it to be brought up you know, properly that we now have this persistent online system. But that bringing that idea, I don't know if any other console would have thought about it or had the, you know, the gall to try it until Sega did. I think, uh, although it's a bit of a cliche, the, the Blue Skies thing can't be underestimated either. <laughs> it's uh, When you think of Sega games, you do think of that quite lurid but pleasing colour palette. Yeah. You don't think of... Mm. I'm not saying they never did kind of more realistic or gritty games because they did but certainly when you think about Daytonas and Sonics and uh, oh god Radmobile everything I mean there, there was this this very sort of bright cheerful sunny aesthetic um, that was married with this idea of sort of adolescent cool that, that was very appealing to yeah but I guess you know a lot of these people have grown up now uh, obviously I haven't but <laughs> <laughs> what about you Sanam what do you think the Sega legacy is from a person who was never really that big into Sega games from a person who's never really that big into Sega games I, I, I appreciate them for being the perennial underdog and keep and for really fighting mm. throughout the 90s to, to, to best probably what will continue to be the best uh, game company in any you know any way you look at it platform holder game maker whatever Nintendo are, are champion and um, I think Sega gave them such a good run for their money in the 90s and uh, they were very unfortunate and unlucky and made some bad decisions and if uh, history will remember them, remember them as getting very very close but not quite close enough hmm. well. there is have you seen the new rumour though I don't know if you've seen at the bottom of the Sonic 4 webpage it shows the Wii the Xbox and the Playstation and then there's a system with a question mark oh on. come on <laughs> <laughs> that's clearly an iPod isn't it? yeah <laughs> you never know <laughs> kind of do. I really, really don't you want kind of another. Do, yeah. <laughs> we really don't actually want another console manufacturer, no. do we? I mean, it would be a disaster. Um, Leon, what would you like to tell Hello. us about? Uh, what, like, <laughs> Game of Dork? <laughs> yes! Or just anything? Yes. Well, it's uh, up to yes. you. You have the floor. Knock yourself out. Okay, well, uh, I...
co-run uh, a website which is at gamerdork.net and I co-present a podcast which is called Gamerdork UK with my colleagues Neil and Jay, also known as Zibzang and Jay. And uh, you can find that podcast either on our website or on iTunes. It's kind of a mix of sort of semi-serious in in-depth game analysis and um, wanking jokes. <laughs> no, it's that, that, that's that's not fair actually. Um, but there's a certain amount of silliness and also a certain amount of the kind of thing I've been doing today. So if you like the sound, can, of I, can I recommend a starter show for them to, to start on Leon? If that's okay. Um, episode, I think it's 16. Where you in, you had a, a Chris Remo on, which uh, oh, is yeah. I think mm. if you if you're new to Game Talk and uh, you fancy listening to Leon and uh, talk more about games, then definitely go to uh, episode 16 where they were joined by Chris Remo, Idle Farms, Gama Sutra. It's one of the, the best things I've listened to all year, all last year. So uh, uh, that's that oh, thank you. Uh, we can't find him now. Though. <laughs> <We can't. laughs> He's disappeared. Chris Remo has left the internet. <laughs> so uh, we, we were trying to get him back on, but uh, maybe right. one day. Well, yes, yeah, so gamerdork.net. Very good. Thank Absolutely. And Dits, you also have a fine show that you'd like to tell us about, I believe. Me too. Uh, yeah, I'm co-host of the gamerscene.com po- uh, podcast, uh, where we... It's quite a, a, a normal podcast where we do our, what we've been playing, the news, the re- reviews and things like that. Um, we have a laugh on there. We've got a great community, and yeah, just, it's our typical show. If you want to hear a bit more of me, start ringing my way through two hours of show, you can come <laughs> along and listen. <laughs> well, I would highly recommend they do that. And they got an American guy on there, too, which is something I will always recommend. It's we a great show, fly. despite mm-hmm. it's got an American guy on there. Hey! <laughs> no, Fly's fl- brilliant. Um, and again, you, uh, another great show, the, the the replay show, which you just did, the Mass Effect show, mm-hmm. was, uh, is uh, epic, <laughs> I think is the only word to describe that show, so... Um, yeah, we managed to get seven of us on on Skype, and it didn't break. Um, we talked about Mass Effect for nearly three hours. <laughs> that was quite good. Wow. That's incredible. <laughs> and we haven't talked about Mass Effect right, two at then. all. So definitely, if you <laughs> if you're listening to this show, you haven't <laughs> had any Mass Effect talk. Go over to the gamer scene. Absolutely, do that right now. So now, what do you got for us? Um, me, I'm going to plug me. <laughs> I, I, okay. I've been doing stuff uh, over the last two weeks. I've been writing stuff. Um, if you go to my my own site, which is shoyanand.com, S-H-O-I-N-A-N.com, uh, I've linked to lots of stuff I've written. I wrote about um, current affairs in video games, things like you know news games, which are uh, Ian Bogost, the guy who runs Persuasive Games, that kind of thing. Uh, I talked about no too much. I'm going to with this podcast too long. If you go over to, to my website, it's all there. Um, and BigRedPotion.com as well, before, before Joe does, because I always forget to. Absolutely. BigRedPotion.com, fantastic site. And I will also plug, I believe sometime this week, uh, on TheGameReviews.com, I will be putting up an article called The Top 10 Most Embarrassingly Bad Xbox 360 Games of All Time, which <laughs> will be pretty good. Um, so, for Leon, for Dits, for Sanan, and for myself, I would like to thank you all for listening to today's show, and we will see you all in two weeks. Hey, hey, let's go make some crazy money. Yeah, 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 yeah.